2: Pacer Nation, what is going on? Welcome back to another episode of Setting the Pace. I am Mike Foch and we are joined by the birthday boy
3: himself, <laughs> Alex Golden. What's going on, birthday boy? Hey, not much. Thanks, Fosche, for the introduction. It's, uh, it's a lot of lot of stuff going on here at Pacer Nation. Where do you want to start today?
2: Well, Alex, I thought since we, we haven't gotten a chance to kind of cover the last game of the Pacer series, the, the one that completed the sweep and sent us into... Uh, Basically, the future of the Pacers basketball. I think we'll start with uh, Game Four, you know, the last game of the season. Alex, what were your thoughts on a game where the Pacers hold the Heat below 100 points, but they score under 90 themselves?
3: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think <laughs> when you go back and watch that game, I thought in that first quarter, Victor looked really spry. He looked energetic. He looked ready to play and. It's just like there was no consistency from any of the players. Um, You know, Brogdon had a good game in game three, but nobody else really did. You know, Turner had a good game in game two. I mean, I thought Turner played pretty well in game four as well. So, you know, I just felt like it was a lot of inconsistent play. The defense was atrocious. I know you said they held them to 99 points, but it was like I don't know how many times I thought in that series Miami just got wherever they wanted to on offense and the Pacers had no – you know stop for that and Goran Dragic went off in that second half of that game as well what really to me was the selling point of that entire game was Jimmy Butler goes out in the middle of the first quarter comes back in the the start of the third but for that whole entire second quarter he's out and, and they let Kendrick Nunn go off off the bench who hadn't played one minute in the series and, and Kendrick Nunn looked better than all five of our players out there so that to me was the the selling point that those guys were done i think they were unhappy with the coach i think there was a lot of uncertainty of the future of this team and they were probably just ready to be done with being in the bubble uh you know six seven weeks isolated from your family i get it so long story short fudge it was just a frustrating end to a a really successful pacers regular season but just that playoff matchup was awful and they did not match the level of intensity that miami played with they didn't. Um,
2: it just felt like for the Pacers, it was easy to make an excuse saying, well, we don't have Sabonis right now. We don't. Like, when Jimmy Butler went down during that, that span, that was when the Pacers were expected to, to go ahead, to be able to capitalize on that. Well, they actually got outscored by seven points in the second quarter. <laughs> and when you mentioned that Kendrick Nunn came in and kind of provided a spark, I felt like it reminded me so much of when Tristan Thompson played game seven and yeah. he hadn't played in the previous six games because – Kendrick Nunn comes in there, immediately gets an assist, then knocks down a shot, gets another assist. I mean, Miami goes on a run right there. So it was kind of like, oh, my God, how did they not even play this guy all all series long? But for the Pacers, it was actually lucky he didn't because, I mean, we already got swept. We didn't need it to be, you know, blowouts yeah. in each game. But McMillan shortens the rotation. We see no T.J. McConnell, who also hadn't played uh, the second half of game three, uh, a very shortened rotation, McDermott, he, he gets some minutes. He gets eight minutes, but just all, all series long, the, the man was basically unplayable. Yeah. It, it sounds mean, but there's no other way to put it. I mean, McDermott contributed close to nothing in this series. So the, the bench, just crunching some numbers, I mean, it, it's it's sickening. But the bench combined, in game four, the pivotal game where you needed someone to step up, the bench gets outscored 38 to three, and in 37 minutes of play, the stat line for the bench is three points, one rebound, two assists, and one steal. <laughs> that is what the Pacers bench gave you in a game four closeout game. So very unfortunate. When you touched on uh, Victor Oladipo, the 25 points was was the the most points he scored during the restart. I did think that he did look you know pretty good in that game. Hats off to Miles Turner. I felt like Miles Turner was aggressive. I felt like he was always in the paint. Um, you know, in Game Four, I-, I thought that he put together a good showing. I mean, second straight double double, playoff career high in points, rebounds. You know, ties a career high for blocks in the playoffs. So uh, I thought that he had a really good game. It was just too little, too late. The Pacers didn't win a game this year, scoring under 100 points. So there's no chance you're going to win scoring under 90.
3: Yeah. Well, I want to touch on uh, Miles here for a second because he really mm-hmm. did play well um with this, you know, with this uh with this match against Miami and I think a lot of that has to do with Bam Adebayo's body size. Uh Bam is a really good passer and a really good screener, but Bam is not somebody that's just going to go post up on the low post, you know. Someone similar to like a uh, you know, an Embiid or a Jokic, you know, someone that's got some weight on Miles. I don't think Miles is like, you know, going to be i think him and bam are probably close to the same weight would be my guess bam might be obviously more athletic more muscular uh more tone i should say but i don't think that turner really struggled with with bam as much as uh you know as, as much as i expected him to but i think a lot of it has to do with the body size because we've seen turner play well against athletic bigs like that but it's been guys that are kind of bullies that he struggles with. And I don't think Bam necessarily is that bully-type player, but Bam does not like Miles Turner. That's a that's a matter-of-fact right there. But, yeah, McDermott, man, you bring him up, and I've been on his case, you know, all series long. But uh, two years, th- seven games, two of 17 from three. percentage from the three-point line. And, and that is supposed to be your three-point specialist. Uh, he's a horrible defender. And it's just one of those things, man, I just – I don't really expect the Pacers bench to be, you know. I didn't expect the Pacers to really have a bench player that could really change the game because they don't have that type of player. Nobody on that bench is a great scorer. You make fun of me all the time because of my love for Terrence Ross. But, you love him. But if you had a scorer like Terrence Ross on your bench, you know, you would be able to get some buckets and not have to play your starters 45 minutes. You know what I mean? And I think that I think that was part of the reason the Pacers offense got really really bogged down in that in that game 4 is just because their starters were getting kind of winded and you know they had no other options, but I would have done a better job if I was McMillan during this series of trying to stagger TJ Warren uh to get some minutes where where Jimmy Butler was not on the floor. I think that if maybe you put Warren back in with the second unit allow him to try to get in the rhythm that could have benefited the Pacers. But I just feel like the offense overall was too stagnant, too many isolations. Um, Malcolm Brogdon came out in an article uh, that Jay Michael posted. Um, we're going to have Jay on here around 530. So um, about you know, 15, 20 minutes from now, you're going to hear Jay talking with us about, about uh, Nate McMillan and the future of this team. But he posted in the article that Brogdon, the guy that came out and endorsed McMillan, was fed up with the, you know, uh, iso ball that they played the entire entire series. And offensively, that's really, it just bogged them down. They had no, no option. And I don't know, Foch, it was just really frustrating to see. And I think that's why fans are so excited about the future of this team. Yeah, I think
2: we are because we're coming off of a series where, you know, just as you mentioned before, so many times it felt like the Pacers were stagnant in offense, just kind of standing around. I mean, I know there was a, a clip going around where it showed even like Brogdon took like 27 dribbles on one possession. Someone even counted it. I mean, just there was just nothing really going someone,
3: on. Someone, someone, that was me, bub. That was that you? Yeah. Oh, well, then there, well, I, then I there we go. It. We got to cracked it. the mystery. I didn't post the video, but I did count it because I was like, "How many darn dribbles did this guy just take in this in this sequence?" Yeah. And I think there was actually like two or three that he had before he got across half court. So really, it could have been like thirty-one dribbles. It really could have been, and just
2: it just felt like there wasn't enough, like you know, backdoor cuts and just other things going on where you could have created. You know, it felt like if there wasn't really like a a pick-and-roll type going, it just felt like nothing was happening at all. We saw Miami shooters just moving all around, getting open. And when you mentioned that the Pacers were, you know, tired towards the end, I believe it was TJ Warren who mentioned that they weren't switching enough and they were chasing around these shooters a lot. And when the starters played much more minutes than they were used to, uh, I think it showed just towards the end. I mean, the Pacers just, they looked like they kind of, lost some gas and I know they were able to kind of cut the lead down a six to with like about two minutes to go but in game four but in the end it just felt like that was a game where they never really looked great in the first quarter they, they you know they led by one after one and you know it felt like we were in it but never looked like they were ever gonna you know run away with this game at all so it's disappointing when you mention that you know, guy like Terrence Ross, I felt like Jeremy Lamb, who I, I, I love Jeremy mm-hmm. Lamb, I felt like he could have been a, a, a solid scoring option for this Pacers team off the bench. And I, I think you, you kind of see, like, hey, you know, yeah, that's probably where Jeremy Lamb was supposed to be able to step up at times. So a loss that a lot of people, you know, everyone's quick to name, you know, the loss of Sabonis, which is obviously a massive loss. And, and you, you throw Sabonis and Lamb in this series, it could be different. The Pacers work. They were, I, I want to say competitive, because most of the time it felt like it was between like a five, six-point game, but it, it just feels like you add those guys in, I feel like it's at least a six-game series instead of a sweep. So, you know, what diving into the math, I believe the exact numbers were the, the ideal starting five that we envisioned of Brogdon, Oladipo, TJ Warren, Sabonis, and Turner, you know, only logged 85 minutes together Mm -hmm. all season. 85 minutes. That is just nothing. So the the team just never quite got off the ground. You know, we spent all year just fantasizing, wait until Vic comes back, wait until Vic comes back. You know, Vic comes back, you know, Brogdon's hurt, then Brogdon returns, then down goes Sabonis. So it just never quite, we can never put it all together. So... We're just going to have to close the chapter on the McMillan era and, you know, and, and what could have been and, and just get hopeful for what will become of this team. A lot of questions will be coming up and, you know, we'll, we'll hope that Jay Michael can help us on some of those questions.
3: Yeah, I think Jay has a pretty good sense of what's going on. I mean, he's uh, he's someone I always enjoy reading his articles and um, his insight because I think he does a pretty good job of getting some sources and, and he's uh, he's very in tune with what's going on. But, yeah. Jeremy Lamb definitely was that Terrence Ross type of player the Pacers went out and got for a good contract. That was what they envisioned him being, was that bench scorer, but someone they could play with the starters while Oladipo was recovering. So, you know, the expectation was Oladipo would be back January, February, get him in there for a few months, let him kind of, you know, feel himself and let him be a, a starter, and then you bring Jeremy off the bench. You know, they could probably split minutes because, you know, come April, Vic probably wouldn't have been able to play the 40 plus minutes he played in august i mean that was the benefit of the restart happening later you know oladipo was able to get a little bit healthier and 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 it just really was a bummer that sabonis had the fasciitis but if you were wanting mcmillan to be fired personally i think getting swept was kind of the uh the final you know the final thing that caused that to happen so it was um it was very frustrating i think as a as a fan to sit there and watch that series you said you thought they were competitive. I don't really feel like it was super competitive. I think it was kind of semi-competitive yeah. because I, exactly. I felt like Dan Dockage has said this on his show. He said, I felt like the Pacers were swimming upstream the entire series, and I agree that with they that. Were. That's, they that's, were. That's a that's, great, that's a, that's a great it's a analogy. analogy. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, it, it just felt like, you know, Spolstra ran circles around Nate McMillan. And that's, and that's not, you know, they had a better team. They were fully healthy. We understand all of the reasons why, you know, you, you feel for Nate in a sense, but at the same time, I mean, Nate ran the same entire offense. Like we've been sitting here saying, Hey, based on regular season success and based on injuries, I understand why the Pacers gave McMillan the extension. However, just because they understood why they did. it doesn't mean I like that decision. Doesn't mean I think that this was, that's what they should have done. I was very happy to see that they were going to make a change. And I will tell you this before I let you, you know, kind of give me a, a talk back here. Herb Simon is 85 years old. He, he was reported to not be happy with what McMillan did and, he, and his inability to play a different style of basketball. So as an 85 year old, you know, we're going through a crazy time right now in this world, the pandemic, uh, social injustice, you know, it's, it's been very frustrating. Um, you know it's been a frustrating year from all sides and I, I think that Herb Simon realizes hey I have got to you know the time's coming to an end where you know I'm not going to be around forever I want to see this team start winning some playoff games so this has been an awful run uh, we, we've had good regular season success but the playoffs have just I haven't enjoyed the playoffs Flatchie. and it's to the point where now is the time make changes and we'll see what those changes entail but I'm excited for the future of this team, and I definitely believe that we're going to see some roster moves, some roster shakeups, along with a coaching uh, change.
2: It feels inevitable. I mean, the good part is is that you know we're not a bottom feeder team of you know in the East. You can add a capable head coach that can, if they can change the style of offense for this team, I, I do think that there's a lot of potential on this team. I mean, there were. Some good three-point shooters on this team, where I feel like they didn't get to be, you know, utilized to their best of their ability. I do think a change is going to be made team-wise, uh, you know, to the players because not many teams are, are going to use like a, a three-center approach. Basically, the Pacers have it. it kind of hurts. I mean, sure, that's almost like a another, you know, episode for another day of what the Pacers have have done the last few years in the draft. But there there is some potential on this team where I think that a coach coming in is inheriting a pretty good situation. It's not like the Pacers are, you know, like like the Hornets, where you're you're loaded on the books and you don't have that much talent and it's going to be a few years. No, I, I do think that this is a playoff team year in, year out, but it's about not being happy with just being there. It's about wanting to go further. And when you mentioned you know, Herb Simon's age, sure, he wants to win now, and I respect that because – you know, we're talking about this is the same team that, you know, fired, you know, Frank Vogel years ago or moved on from him, and that's a man who at least took the Pacers to two conference championships. When you're looking at Nate McMillan and his long history with Kevin Pritchard, he hadn't even won a playoff series with Portland all those years. So you're talking about their relationship goes back so many years without even having won a playoff series? I yeah. mean that's that's at some point, you know, a change had to be made. I respect it because it felt like, do we want to really be the underdog team year in, year out? Is that just our identity? When when does being the underdog really pay off as much? You know, you want to be a, a team that can take the next step forward. And you know, McMillan, I think they had said earlier in the year that he wanted to be right around 33-point attempts per game. That's good for 29th in the NBA. That doesn't cut it anymore. I mean, he's almost, you know, if we had known what the numbers were going to end up saying, it's basically saying, I want to be last in then NBA in threes, and, you know, hey, that's not going to work. So the the weird thing about game four was it was actually the one game that the Pacers outscored the heat from three, but it was just it was too late. I mean, you're talking about in the whole series, they broke 101 points one out of four times. I mean, we yeah. just saw the Clippers put up... 154 points in regulation, and the Pacers put up 87 in elimination.
3: Yeah. So Yeah. doesn't it's, cut it. No, it doesn't. And I think what was a really good tidbit from Kevin Bowen here on the local radio station, uh, he said the Pacers, I believe, led um, for 11 seconds in the fourth quarter of the entire series. 11 oh my seconds. Oh, God. Out of 48 minutes. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's just one of those things, and I don't really understand it why why we were so so bad i really thought it was going to be more interesting than that but yeah foch i don't i don't know what to expect from this team going forward except i do believe there's going to be a lot of moves and it was just one of those things where this series was not um the way i expected it to go down i'm trying to find a tweet that i put out where i have the numbers up of the entire the the entire um there it is okay yeah so between the the pacers bench and the heat bench he he benched throughout the series outscored the pacers 126 to 70 they out rebounded the pacers on the offensive glass 37 to 23 Uh, on you know both offense and defense it was 211 to 170 so there's a 41 differential there and then in the free throw attempts they had 119 to the pacers 81 so you just look at those stats and I'm just like, yep, that's that's pretty much where they lost it. I mean, especially in like that game four, you know, like it was so funny because I remember there was a possession where they literally got three offensive rebounds that he did and it ended with like a Tyler Hero wide open layup when the Pacers were trying to really make a push there at the end. So it's just at the end of the day, this Pacers team wasn't good enough. You know, McMillan did say this on Scott Agnes's podcast today. He said you your your roster will dictate the way you play so that's the that's an interesting thing that he said i don't really know if he was kind of making not a shot but i guess basically saying this roster that was constructed having two bigs having a bigger slower point guard in brogdon how am i supposed to play fast you know what i mean so mm-hmm. maybe that's kind of where he was getting at thought that the slower lineup that he had i mean really that's my thing that i noticed too with this lineup Fudge, Vic is the only one that has like that burst that can get to the rim. Oh yeah. None oh, of these yeah. other none of these other guys have it. I mean Aaron Holiday maybe off the bench, but it's like they don't have that guy that can, you know, really like beat you with his speed. Like Brogdon beat you with the size, Warren size, Turner. He can beat some bigs off the off the drive. It depends on what big he's going against. Bam out of bio. He doesn't have a chance against. But yeah so you know overall i just i just think there's gonna be some changes they need to get a little more athletic they need to get some more three-point shooting and i'm fine with changes i like these guys i don't want to see you know everybody leave because you as a fan you grow attached to them as a person covering the team there's things you like about them and elements you like about these players and how they play but at the end of the day i just want to see this team win and i'm willing to uh you know for kevin pritchard to make any move to get us better
2: I completely agree because we're at a point where it's like, hey, being in the playoffs is nice, but getting swept, it almost has you at a different level. Of you can, before Nate McMillan, the Pacers had never been swept in their history. They have been swept three of the last four times now uh, in the playoffs. Something had to change, and in this instance, change is good. This is not a situation where I think everybody respects Nate. Great guy. Wish him nothing but the best. But this team is better than what they have shown in the in the playoff months. You know, I was going to say, you know, come April or May, but obviously this year it's a different thing—the yeah. In the playoff time where change had to be made. And I, I respect it from the front office because it shows that we're not just trying to be middle of the pack; we want to win, and we believe we can win.
3: Well, let's see what they do uh, decision wise going forward. If they really back up what they're saying there with with that statement, Foch. I mean, sure, that means it might not settle for Nate's mediocrity, but if they go and hire a coach that's similar to Nate and the Pacers continue to have the same success, I think we've got to start pointing fingers at other people. Obviously, the head coach is always going to be the easy scapegoat, but these players, they quit on their coach. They didn't play at the level they could have played at, and I think that the way the roster was constructed, it was built for a regular season and not for a playoff uh, contending team. So that's just my personal opinion i know you can't control injuries and you know but if you look at the top eight players on the pacers were those eight guys good enough to get you a a series win maybe but it's possibly they weren't so that's my only concern but uh anyway let's take a quick break here let's bring on jay michael from the indy star and we'll be right back All right, Pacer fans, we got a treat for you right now. Jay Michael covers the Pacers for the Indy Stars, joining us to talk about the uh, firing of head coach Nate McMillan and where the Pacers might be heading and what direction uh, they could be going. And then we also got uh, Jay on to talk a little bit about his conversation with Nate McMillan today that they had in the morning. So, Jay, thanks for joining us, man.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, man.
3: It's been a busy uh, 48 hours absolutely I know the bubble's been kind of crazy not being able to be there for the games and now you you know the players get back the coaches get back and you know McMillan's gone so uh what are your thoughts initially on this and on this decision by the Pacers organization to move in a new direction
1: I mean a little bit surprising at the same time not surprising I'll tell you you know going in if you'd have told me this a month ago I'd been shocked just because um you know we know he got Uh, the next he got the 2020 21 guaranteed on his contract when previously it wasn't guaranteed so that was perplexing that's actually one of the things that he and I talked a lot about I was like why would you get fired unless you had some other transgression that we don't know about after they just guaranteed your salary for the upcoming season if they didn't know if you were going to be the guy they would keep around why would they do that and and that's how that's when, when I connect the dots, for me, it's, um, you know, Pritchard, Kevin Pritchard fired him, uh, but Kevin Pritchard also was the guy to, from what I was told by multiple people who approached him, including Nate. Nate said this on record, approached him about guaranteeing him for the following season. So that's how I'm pretty confident, you know, the re- information I received that Herb Simon was watching what was happening in the playoffs and said, no, he has to go. Uh, wow because Pritchard had given him, um, uh, Pritchard had come to, you know, I was told, hey, Pritchard was the guy that delivered the news, he's the guy that said it, you know, it's his decision, but it required some nudging, or or, I don't know what you call it, forcing or nudging. Uh, And I think that's why you have the conflicting kind of signals there, because it was like, oh, he's safe. And then now all of a sudden, no, he's not safe. And Uh, it's, uh, you know, this kind of goes in line with the whole victory. Is he playing? Is he not playing kind Mm -hmm. of stuff? It's just been this confusion for the last two months of, you know, them saying formally one thing and doing another thing. And, um, it's, 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 it's nuts. So I understand it, uh, because honestly I was watching, I want to say game three. I can't remember which one it is. And I, I watched him come out of timeout and botch a possession and actually, Nate and I talk extensively about that today, about how disorganized they were, and I remember looking at the game saying, "Boy, luckily for him, he's got that contract sewn up because if he didn't and he was still in flux, this is the kind of thing that gets you fired. I said that to myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and and um uh, and lo and behold, those kinds of things is kind of what led to his downfall as well as what they thought as um you know his his lack of offensive imagination, something that he said he didn't think was an issue uh, in this conversation with me as well as that, um, uh, his relationships, they wanted him to, to, to reach out and be a little bit more amenable to building relationships with players. And, you know, Nate's kind of an old-school guy who doesn't quite operate that way. And uh, it didn't happen.
2: You know, old-school sounds pretty much like the, the correct term here, and it feels like the Pacers, their style the last few years hasn't changed that much where fans have hoped that it would, you know, after each year. At this point, do you just feel like this is kind of who Nate McMillan is and that change wasn't really something that you were going to see too much of? It's very hard for a coach to reinvent themselves. Do you think it was possible for Nate to be able to reinvent himself, or do you think this is kind of what we were
1: looking at? Um, I mean, I guess this is what we're looking at. Um, I, I, don't, I don't see – you know, he, he sees it as a pretty basic game like, hey, you got to beat your man. And, um, you know, if you have a big switching on to a guard, the guard's got to beat the big. If you got a guard trying to defend one of your bigs in a post, you got to be able to post him up to be successful. He sees it in those simplistic terms. Um, and the Pacers look, have been looking at it uh, in, in an analytical sort of way about the points per possession that you're getting or that you're attempting and that it does the math. When you just do the basic math, Their conclusion is it just doesn't. No matter what, it just doesn't work. You got to get, you know, we got these shooters. You got to get more threes up. We have the the isolation basketball really drove her crazy, Uh, and and I just I just don't see that Nate. You know, can he go off? He said he's going to take a year off and kind of figure out what he should what he's going to do next. And um, do I think he's going to be remarkably changed if he comes back as a head coach? I don't think so. Um, but, um, it's, it's, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird. Like you want to play like, you know, everybody wants to play this fast tempo, uh, up, up, you know, fast break sort of basketball, get up a lot of threes to have a chance to win. And even though he can be successful doing what he does in the regular season, I, I think he would be okay if in the postseason he did some radical things, and got some results. But I think the fact that they felt like even he did the same things in the postseason. And actually somebody said something to me. They says, How many, how many new plays did you see us run between game one and game four? And I was like, honestly, if y'all ran something new, maybe it was one thing, I just can't remember. It's like, no, this is Miami alone in game four ran four different sets plays that they hadn't seen the entire series. And that pretty much was that pretty much was the kind of thing that they're talking about. Like it's, it's, they they don't think he, I I think I said in my report yesterday that they felt that he was being inflexible. And I think Nate could still be employed with the Pacers right now. Um, If he, even if they had not succeeded But he had tried to do some other things and maybe, you know, and maybe it doesn't work or maybe it works, but it's still not enough. Maybe he's still there. But I think his either inability or unwillingness to, you know, he wants to stick to his guns. And that that's what led to the turn of like he's got to he's got to go because you don't give him I don't care what anyone says. You don't give a you don't guarantee his money and give him it's not necessarily an extension as much as they guaranteed that next year of his deal. Why do you guarantee that part that 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 deal for next year if you plan to fire him all along? And so that's that's also a breadcrumb on the trail that shows you that you know this wasn't something back in July when they came into the bubble, that didn't appear to be what the plan was, that he had seemed secure. And maybe because he thought he was secure. He could do that. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that was it. But I, in, in defense of him as well, he said to me, I didn't get out of the first round. I don't deserve to coach another year. He said, I thought I could get us out of the first round before Sabonis got hurt. I know this is a results-oriented business. I didn't get it done. And he was kind of uh, resigned to the fact that if he didn't get him out of the first round, he didn't believe that he should have continued anyway. Wow. And, and, and maybe, yeah, he said that. And maybe that's maybe that's why he did what he did. I don't know that he was like I, I didn't I didn't get it done. um it, it happened on my watch. It doesn't matter he He drew He drew a comparison to the COVID pandemic. He's like, "I'm not going to be one of these people. you know you can say, oh I, I didn't create the virus, not the problem. You're on the watch, and all of these things happened while it was on your watch. He's like, "You can't do that if you're to leave a country. I can't do that as a leader of this team." I'm responsible for that and so it was the right decision and he says he agreed with Pritchard that it was time for him to go
3: wow well I I think one of the things that was in you know intriguing to me when reading your article was just how upset it seemed like Brogdon was with the uh with the whole entire offensive game plan and we we had seen Brogdon you know just a few weeks ago you know be really excited I mean he made a social media post about backing the the re-signing or the extension of Nate McMillan and then it seems like his tone changed a little bit and I think you mentioned you know he said if he had Sabonis he thought he could win the series I really felt like our entire offense both with the starters and the bench was predicated on what Sabonis did I mean he was the focal point of it and rightfully so I mean he wasn't also this year the paces were much better with him out there but it just made them so you know they weren't diverse in their offense and I think that that definitely is a problem in I, I like that he owned up to it and said that he was kind of, you know, ready to be done because he didn't feel like he deserved it. But it was also interesting on uh, Scott Agnes' podcast, he mentioned which I don't know if I'm sure he said this to you too, he said, but the players that the front office gives you kind of dictates the way you can play. And yeah. if you think about this roster and the way it's built, I was I was telling Fachi I'm like the only guy really that can that can really change you know, it has a burst in the in the starting lineup is Victor. All these other guys are pretty slow-footed, and I, yes. I think I think if we go forward with a more modern style of offense, it might be a breath of fresh air. But I think you're going to have to have some internal roster changes because this roster right here is not going to be able to play uh, an, an up-tempo style of basketball.
1: No doubt about it. And I think and I think that's where there's the disconnect. I said to someone in the Pacers organization yesterday, they saw something. I think that I tweeted about that they're going to probably need to overturn like half to three quarters of the roster if you're going to play this modernized five out up and down type of system and disagreed with me and vehemently disagreed with me. And I, I said the same thing you said. I said, look, you know, Brogdon is not a guy, you know, Okay, if he's your spot up guy, but he's he you know he's not going to be your main ball handling guy in that sort of system. Jared, I said let's think about it. If you want to get all these threes, Jeremy Lamb is a mid range long two guy. He's good at it, but mm-hmm. he's not a, necessarily a three point shooter. Um, T.J. Warren had that burst in the bubble and he's shown some flashes of that, but he's feasted in the mid range. So now you're going to take those shots away. Who knows how they look if you do that? And you're right, like th- that's not that doesn't really fit Sabonis' style. Though, you know, his ability to screen obviously is valuable in rebound and you need that kind of stuff. But if you play some of this fast-paced, like, D'Antoni-style basketball, the big dives and goes to the rim and plays above the rim. That's not Sabonis' style. Um, Miles Turner's not the – he's a tall, long guy who's a little bit, you know, more flexible than maybe Sabonis is in some situations. He's a better shot blocker, better rim protector, that sort of stuff. But Miles Turner isn't this super fantastic athlete. Who just blows other bigs out of the water with his athleticism. So I think there's no doubt about it. If you decide to go to this this uh, fast paced up tempo style, I think some people there think they have the pieces to do it. I think you have some pieces. Mm-hmm. I think there's significant pieces that have to change to maximize that. So you may have a system where you're getting more efficient offense and you're doing some things that are better that you like, but You know, instead of winning 45 to 48 games a year, you're now treading in the low 40s to high 30s and not making the playoffs. But, you know, your efficiency numbers in certain areas are maybe more to your liking until they can change that personnel. And I, I think the and that's why I say in order to do that, the next step is you have to make an aggressive move with the personnel. And if you don't do that, then, you know, it's a you know, you're only doing it halfway.
2: You know, I, I think a move has to be made because when you're looking at this Pacers team, I, I just think it's still just a little bit puzzling with, you know, having Turner, Sabonis, and Gogo all trying to find the minutes. Do you envision the, you know, Turbonis combo over there of Miles and Domas coming back to this team next year?
1: If you'd have told me before this firing in Nate, I'd say they would come back next year, but they would make a move with one of them before the years out, because that's what I originally said before Nate's firing. Um, because I think they wanted to see a little bit more of those guys before making a final move. But now that they fired Nate, I think uh, before the season, whenever whenever that season starts, because I have no idea when the next season is going to begin, I think there's no doubt about it. Um, they're they're going to have to do something. There's a lot of takers, a lot of interest in Miles Turner, and you know you you can you can get some things, some pieces for him. So I would say. You know, I'd say you move Turner and, you know, maybe you end up keeping... I I would imagine if you move Turner, then you'd have to keep... Would you keep Sabonis or Goga? I mean, do you know what you have in Goga? I don't. Yeah, Uh, I don't either. I I don't. I mean, he has more potential to be a spread big, obviously, than than, um, Sabonis, but he still doesn't know how to screen properly most of the time. Yeah. So... Yeah. So the question is, how, how many how many of those bigs do you keep? Are you going to get rid of one? Or are you going to get rid of two of the three? I think if you really want to be aggressive, the way I think they want to be aggressive, I would consider moving two of the three. Which I two? Would, I'd say Goga and maybe uh, in, in either Turner or Sabonis. But yeah. I, I don't know yeah. what you. I don't know what you could get. I don't know what you could get for him. And. I you got to envision what is the team going to look like. Who are you definitely when you tell me who you're definitely going to keep on the roster? I think it would make it easier for me to determine if you want to keep Turner or Sabonis. I would imagine if you're going to keep McDermott, if you're going to be able to resign Justin Holiday. And by the way, I was told yesterday, Holliday, You know, if you'd asked me a couple months ago, Justin Holiday really wanted to come back to the Pacers. I've heard the opposite now. Oh, um, no a little bit sour on some things that went down um, and is not very happy with some of the stuff. Um, that the, the locker room wasn't very um, – wasn't a happy place. Now, the problem that I have is uh, – and probably that a lot of other people who cover the league have is, you know, you're normally there. You're normally there post-game. Um, I can pick up on things that I see. I, can, I have side conversations with guys. Um, I've met a couple – I've met some guys for coffee afterwards or grab lunch one day where we can kind of – I know what they're saying in front of the cameras is BS and, you know, we'll (laughs) go on the side and, okay, this is what what's really going down. You don't have I don't have that opportunity anymore because of this whole thing. Everything we do is via Zoom call. And I can't ask guys certain things on Zoom calls. I'm tempted to, but I know they can't give me an honest answer. Um, And plus, I don't want everybody else to hear it when I'm the person that's observed it or I have the information and I'm not trying to give it away. So yeah, uh, and and so I lose that you lose that ability, and it's harder to read the room, uh, given this whole bubble situation. Um, but I was told by a couple of people um, that Holl- Justin Holiday, who knows what the market's going to be, but if he has options uh, as a as a unrestricted free agent, um, there's a good chance if he has options, he he's out of there and. Uh, But who knows? You know, we still don't know what's going to happen in free agency. Maybe there's not a market and maybe nobody's spending money and it's best for him to come back to the Pacers. But I think the Pacers, I was told a few months ago, the Pacers weren't sure if they could keep him. But I thought they were sure. I thought they weren't sure if they could keep him because they thought he might command too much money. But now maybe the reason why they're not sure they can keep him is because of the stuff that I've been told as of yesterday about kind of locker room stuff that he's not very happy with.
3: Do you think it has to do with the coach? Do you think a coaching change would you know be a difference maker in that?
1: No, it's 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 more of a it's more of a getting along with certain people, uh, respecting the people in the locker room. There, there's a there is a um, uh, I'm trying to find a, a way to explain this. There is a getting just firing Nate and making a few trades is going to take more than that. If you don't trade the right people, Mhm. If they have chemistry issues, and it goes beyond chemistry with X's and O's. Um, there's complaining. Uh, some people were taken aback by certain players complaining about other players being responsible for them getting beat on defense and um, uh, passing the buck. I, I can tell you two players who were really angry about players in the locker room passing the buck on their failures, Malcolm Brogdon and Justin Holiday okay i can't i can't tell you all the players they're angry (laughs) but malcolm brogdon and justin well i
3: have a i have a hunch who it might be but i don't want to you know put you in that spot to reveal who it is
1: (laughs) yeah so it's it's and when i say that i've heard that consistently from multiple people so when i go out and i say that i'm not relying on one person or one source or one person on one side of it i need to you know you hear plenty of stuff and some of it turns out "Eh, it's a little bit true but it's not as bad as it seems um there's just um you know so there was unhappiness with the way the offense was being run they didn't they thought obviously Nate's one-dimensional hey if you don't beat this matchup then hey you know just chuck it up before the clock expires um so there was unhappiness about that but there's also unhappiness about just kind of the chemistry that does getting rid of Nate and trying to make these other guys, you know, bringing in somebody else new to make them all happy, will that help? I, I don't know. I, mm. I don't feel it will help right away. Um, but there are definitely, and I mean definitely, some chemistry issues with the, with him in the locker room. There's chemistry issues last year. I think these are more pronounced.
3: Well, let me ask yeah. you this real quick. Sorry to cut you off, watch, but let me just ask you uh, real quick. When it comes to Victor Oladipo being in a contract year, the, the future seems uncertain with him. I know that I know that Kevin Pritchard is huge on on culture and if Vic is you know kind of wishy-washy in and out you know with where he stands would it be smart for the Pacers to trade quote-unquote their franchise player before he leaves them high and dry in the offseason next year or do you think they try to find that right coach that can you know get him and the other players to coexist and and figure this out going
1: forward. I would say move him. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm all about doing things a year early rather than a year late. That's generally how I prefer to do it. Um, I I think this whole idea where you try to placate people and you try to put certain things in place and hope they stay, and then they leave you high and dry, and now you're really burned (laughs) because right, you base your future off of. You know, it's like if there's any doubt, if there's any doubt of his commitment. And, you know, I've been told everything from Oladipo is going to ask for a trade or that and that the Pacers realize they got to do something in terms of if they can't get a commitment that they need to do something. I've, I've heard a little bit different things from different people um, that something's going to happen in that regard. Um, how, how you know what's going to come first? Will the Pacers move him or would he say? I want to get out of here. I'm not sure. Uh, but if. I were in charge, and you know there was any sort of um, um, uh, wishy-washiness. I think you got to, especially when you're a mid-sized market like Indiana. I don't think you can afford to wait and a guy leave you and you get nothing in return. It's it's one thing if a guy leaves the Lakers or the Knicks or the Brooklyn Nets or some guy a team like that in a bigger market. You you can get free agents like Kevin Durant coming to you without even having to recruit him. Indiana doesn't have that luxury.
2: No, they really don't, and, and I do think that you know, the Pacers can't afford that risk. I think if Paul George had walked, I think this team could still be rebuilding right now. So you don't want to take that chance. I do hope, though, if, if the Pacers do decide to trade him, that the the league doesn't interpret it in a way of, oh, you know, if they're going to deal one of their own like that, then why, why sign there? But... Uh, to kind of move over to a little bit of a different topic, do you think the front office needs a little bit more blame for maybe some of the the reaches um, or the, the lack thereof of production from recent draft picks? Because when you're looking at, you know, I like Aaron Holiday. I think that he's been a little inconsistent. I do think, though, he's shown some great flashes. But when you're looking at drafting TJ Leaf over some of the guys that he was picked over, and then also Goga, who unfortunately was not able to contribute much this year. Do you think the front office needs to maybe accept a little bit more blame there because the Pacers weren't able to get essentially anything out of those two positions, those two players this year?
1: Um, I, I actually think that they, they know what they, they know what happened with TJ Leaf. <laughs> they know about the mistake they made with TJ Leaf. That's um, I, I, I think if you ask any of them. To give you an honest assessment, you know, how, how could you argue that not picking John Collins or OG Ananobi or someone of, of that stature over T.J. Leaf? Of course you regret that pick. Um, and I wrote something. I, th- I think I did a, a look back at, at Pritchard's um, his three years as president. And that was one thing I, I really dug deep into um, how they ended up taking T.J. Leaf when, you know, everything suggested leading up to that draft that they draft probably John Collins in that spot. And that's what, they, that's what I, that's what most people thought they were going to do is take John Collins. So, I mean, yeah, look, if you miss in a draft, you can't afford to be the Pacers and missing a draft. Um, that's one of the couple of ways other than trades that other than trades, that's the way that you build a team. Um, and especially when you know that slim pickings and free agency, and you're always going to get those second and third, fourth tier guys, uh, and not the first-tier guys, you, you really got to hit it on them draft picks. But I, I'm going to give – look, Goga's had – I think Goga's going to eventually be okay. Uh, I see things that Goga does well when he does play well. He's a little bit, you know, meek personality. He's not used to – you know, he's got to learn how – if he just learns how to set screens, I think he'll he'll rocket up the charts immensely. It's just His screen setting drives me insane, but I, I think that comes from um, just not being experienced in doing that. I, I don't see a whole lot when it comes to Leaf. Uh, the draft that Goga came out of, I don't see that draft as being as as talented as the one that Leaf came out of. And so I understand picking Goga where they got him. I don't understand picking Leaf given your other options at that pick. So, yeah, I mean, they absolutely should, should and they know it. They know um, that they missed the boat on the TJ pick.
3: Well, I want to, I you know, before we let you go here, about five or ten more minutes, maybe we can spend with you, Jay. I want to get your thoughts on, you know, potential candidates you could see as the uh, the new head coach for the Pacers. I, I, I've done some research myself trying to figure out some names that could be potential candidates. But at the end of the day, you know, it's just hearsay. Is there anything you're hearing other than D'Antoni, any names you're interested in?
1: The only other name I've heard, and I don't believe this is a serious name, um, is just one that's thrown out there, is Mike Brown
3: um mike brown oh (laughs) helvin (laughs) snow
1: that's the only other name i've had mentioned to me and i had it pitched fiercely and i think part of it is because you know the golden state connection being under steve kerr learning have his connections to indiana that sort of stuff but um you know i haven't heard a whole lot on that front because you know usually you like to have your coach in place before you know you start reorganizing a roster and and making moves. But given this kind of this truncated time period we have from whenever the season ends to the draft to free agency, there's just not a lot of time. Um, and so ideally they want to get the coach in place to help kind of reshape uh, h- how they're going to reshape the team, but it, it might not necessarily happen, especially if you're interested in, say, D'Antoni and the season continues. And, you know, if he goes deep, obviously, if he, you know, get the Rockets were to, you know, if, if his season were to end right away and he becomes a free agent, the expectation is that he's out at Houston. Um, and so he's going to be If he hits the market, I mean, he's one of your top two guys that you're interested in. But understand that D'Antoni's name has been shopped by people who tr- have been trying to get his name out there in the conversation for a while now. So I've always kind of taken it with a grain of salt. Um, is D'Antoni the guy – um, did, did they fire Nate Because they think or know they're going to get D'Antoni I mean I don't know I, I don't know the answer to that I, I don't But is it is it possible? Sure Do I know that? No But I think they were going to make the move With Nate regardless of who was available um, But D'Antoni Clearly if you're looking at Modernizing offense which is the word that was Used to me um, D'Antoni would have to be one of the guys That you bring in no matter for not you know you need a culture reset with how you play, and th- that's clearly a guy. You know th- there's all the rest of the names that you hear are some of the traditional names that you hear brought up at this time. You know, and somebody else I forgot. Somebody else mentioned another name. I'm sure that'll make you really excited. Was Mark Jackson? And I thought it was a joke, but they said <laughs> Mark Jackson. I-, I can't believe that. Not if you're trying. Not not if you trying to modernize the offense. No hate. No hatred towards Mark. I just he just doesn't fit modernizing the offense based off of if you go by if i go by what i've been told then that kind of makes it a small group of of coaches to choose from not a bunch of coaches
3: yeah yeah
2: given the ties to the pacers i, I could see his name kind of popping up just you know as you mentioned like that but i don't know if they'll be uh taken seriously um but you know there's gonna be about six or seven coach op- uh, openings you know this off season so it's gonna be pretty interesting do you think that the Pacers feel pressure to maybe bring in a more proven coach like a Mike D'Antoni who's been in the league for, you know, say 15 plus years, or maybe take a gamble on a younger coach where, you know, who knows, there could be a high risk, high reward, maybe more of a safer bet? Where do you see the Pacers kind of going?
1: Yeah, I think a coach who values building relationships with some of these guys. And most of those are coaches who skew a little bit younger. I mean, look, Mike D'Antoni isn't young. Um, but most of them kind of tend to skew younger. If you look at, you know, guys like um, uh, Nick Nurse in Toronto, guys like that, I mean, yeah, if there was a guy who was a Nick Nurse type of guy, yes, no doubt, absolutely. Um, so they want to have that that the modernized offense, but they want a coach who kind of values – the interpersonal relationships with players more than what Nate did. Nate was old school also, you know, aside from the way he kind of viewed the game in their opinion. But also, you know, when I was talking to Nate, one of the things he kind of said to me, which was kind of consistent with what I was told was, you know, if there was an issue with some players or a player and Nate says, he's always, you know, he learned from Chuck Daly back in the day, you got to stay away from trying to put out fires with all this nonsense involving drama with players here and there. Nate's like, that's not my problem. He likes to stay away from that stuff, keeps an arm's distance. And I think they want a coach who is a little bit more willing to engage and get hands-on in that situation. And so I think that also is kind of like a philosophical difference that they want to see in the new coach as well as the modernizing of the offense.
3: Yeah, because over the last 20 years, the Pacers have pretty much had a defensive-minded coach in that seat besides the years they had Jim O'Brien, and that roster was just a complete and total crapshoot. So I, I just have to ask you, you know, Herb Simon's 85 years old. Do you think his age, you know, realizing, hey, I might not have too much longer. I mean, I'm 85 years old. Do you think that he wants to see this team, you know, win now? Do you think he's more eager to spend a little bit of money on a head coach and is that why a name like Dan Tony, someone that's a, a retread guy but somebody that has you know a 500 record in the playoffs right now 51 and 51 is that why someone like that is is being rumored around and some of the Pacers could potentially sign?
1: Well, that's why when they when they fired me and you know and when Dan Tony's name started to pop up. And like I said, I'm I'm, I'm hedging the Dan Tony thing because even though the whole agent thing, they both have, you know, his agent's Warren Legary. Uh Kevin Pritchard has worked with Warren Legarry uh to represent him at times. Um and so you naturally make that connection between the, the two. Uh, and I, I talked to you know, I, I when I look at um you know, a guy like Dantoni, who is um a sixty nine years old. Is he we say he's sixty nine,
3: right? Yeah, sixty nine.
1: Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um and and I look at a, an older guy like that. Um, tell you what, tell me, that, ask me that question one more time. I just forgot it.
3: <laughs> well, my it was basically with Herb <laughs> Simon being eighty five years old. That's uh, it. That's yeah, his yeah. age. You think that has a factor plays a factor in how they go about building this building this Pacers roster?
1: I mean, look, Herb. I don't. Herb never said a word to me, so I'm not basing it on any conversation with Herb. But I mean, how could it not be a mm-hmm. uh, concern to try to win? Uh, and I think that's why, though. If you are looking for a younger coach, if you're looking for your, you know, your Nick Nurse, your Kenny Atkinson kind of guy, um, and you don't know much about him, um, you know, you could, you know, you could be, you could whiff, and that sets you back even more. Or do you go with the known quantity that you have in a Dan Tony type of guy who's older, who's more experienced, but you know um, – kind of what he's going to bring to the table in terms of some certain things, depending on what his staff is going to look like. You know, he's never been lauded for his defense, but you know, the Pacers could have some input on his staff. I don't know exactly how that would go because it's not even clear how many of the assistants that the Pacers are going to keep, or if they're going to complete. You'd imagine if they brought in a guy like D'Antoni, all the assistants would be gone. Um, So a guy like D'Antoni though, is going to cost more. And, if you got a younger guy and you took a risk on a younger guy, the younger guy is going to be cheaper. No, you know, the guy who hasn't really had a shot, he's going to take less money. And, um, so I feel like if that's, if you're going to go with trying to win now that you're trying to get some results now, Herb Simon is going to have to pay. And that's an interesting thing to me because, you know, we're in this pandemic teams aren't able to have fans. Owners are losing money because you don't get the gate receipts, you know, owners keep all that revenue from gate receipts and that gate revenue that comes in on game night. They don't, they don't have that anymore. And so given that your expenses would go up with a coaching staff, with an experienced guy, the level of D'Antoni and his name recognition um, and that your revenues coming in are going down that, that, I guess that will challenge the whole idea that, uh, you know, Herb has a reputation of being cheap and, you know, if he goes that route, it's going to cost some money. So he's going to have to dig deep in his pockets if he does that.
2: For my last question, uh, do you think the next coach uh, that comes to the Pacers is going to be given an absolute fair shot now that it feels like that the Pacers, you know, th- their voices, the, the Pacers fans, their voices have been heard? Or do you think it's this, this fan base wants to win now to the point where, you know, if a year or two – into a new contract where the coach doesn't work out, they might be shouting again for another firing.
1: They'll be shouting for another firing in a year or two.
2: <laughs> I think so. I think so, too.
1: Yeah. I don't – hey, I don't know. Fan bases all around the league think they're the most de- demanding and unique and nobody else is upset like them because nobody's had it hard like them. Man, I hear the same. every. Fa- I know fan base in San Antonio that thinks Greg Popovich hasn't done a good enough job. In oh, how many, my God. How many trophies has he brought them? Yeah, I mean – Come on. It's like – so I, I've yet – have you ever run across a fan base that's just elated with everything a coach does? No. And and some of no. them have teams that are competing for championships every year. So, yeah. no. Loathing is part of the experience. So
2: yeah, – <laughs> Quick, quick, quick follow-up, Jay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, just, but... just real quick. You know, we saw you know people not tied to the Pacers organization. For instance, like a Dwayne Wade or an Eric Spolsha really trying to say, like, you know, this is shocking that the Pacers let Nate walk, you know, you know fired him. Um, do you think kind of some of those uh, opinions aren't really as warranted when it kind of feels like maybe, you know, they weren't watching the Pacers as closely the last few years? I mean, obviously, Nate is very respected around the league, a great guy um, who's, you know, worked close to Team USA and everything of the sort, but it, it just kind of felt like from being closer to watching, you know, every single game. That this was a move that had to be made, despite what you know, a Dwayne Wade or an Eric Spoelstra thinks that might have respect for him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're operating from different. They're operating from a different position than somebody who watches them every day, or somebody who's in who's, who calls himself a fan of the team. Or it's it's that's always going to be the case. Um, I mean, how many times have you even heard? On a, on, a, on a telecast, a national telecast, somebody describes Miles Turner as a – he prefers to play in a low post. The Sabonis, yeah. pre- Sabonis prefers to face up. I mean, <laughs> yeah, come on. Let's yeah. – <laughs> I'm not naming names, uh, but you know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, I mean, I think you got to take some of that with a grain of salt. But, yeah, I think a lot of it is, has to do with, you know, the respect for him. And he's a good guy. Nate, 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 Nate's a good man. man. Like, I, I've known Nate since his days in Portland. Um, he's a likable guy, and I think they, they they have a personal affinity for him that I think fans do not. Because let's face it, fans say things on social media; they'll say things at the arena that they would never say to Nate McMillan's face, right? Mm-hmm. So it's easier to be like fire him, get him out of it. But if you actually knew him and talked to him, you'd feel bad about saying that. Yeah, I guarantee you, you feel bad about saying it because he is a good guy. And I don't know anybody who doesn't like him. And when I say anybody, I mean media people, people who work with him. He's always amenable to just about everything. I've dealt with some surly, nasty coaches. Randy Whitman being among the most surliest. Um, and Nate McMillan, what he deals with, what he puts up with, uh, and you know, he, he'll sit there and talk to somebody in the media. He'll do a session for 30 minutes. I'll need to pull him aside on a, for a one on one. He's got other stuff to do, and he'll sit there and he'll talk to me as long as I as, as I as I want. And I'm gonna tell you right now, most coaches in this league will not do that. Um, so that's you know that's from personal experience, but he doesn't have to do that. And so because we know what certain coaches who are really difficult to deal with look like and how they behave and that they're mean and that they're nasty and they make I've seen coaches make personal attacks on people that aren't warranted. I've never seen Nate McMillan do that. Mm-hmm. He, he's a good dude. So I understand why people like Spolstra and Wade are saying that about Nate uh, because they're looking at it from a different perspective uh, as obviously Kevin Pritchard, who's the one that, that fired him. Or Herb Simon. And by the way, that doesn't mean that Kevin Pritchard doesn't like Nate. He's he's shattered about having to do what he did. It really, just because Kevin Pritchard fired him doesn't mean he detests Nate or thinks Nate is a bad guy. He just wants him to go in a different direction. So you got to be able to separate the personal from the professional. And I think they were speaking more about the personal stuff that they want good things for Nate McMillan. Whereas most people who don't like him and say bad things about him, they don't know that side of it.
3: Yeah, I, I definitely think Nate's a great guy, and, and you know, from an X's and O standpoint, sure you can be frustrated with him, but I, I don't know. I was I was really impressed with how he handled things and just hearing the way he's treated the reporters. I mean, taking time to do one-on-one conversations with them, getting back with you guys, you know, the day after he just got fired. I mean, that speaks a lot in the fact that you said he talked with you for over an hour about everything. That to me just speaks a lot about Nate McMillan. And of course, Kevin Pritchard, I'm sure they've been, you know, tied together since their Portland days. So this is obviously a very tough decision on a personal level. But at the end of the day, you know, Kevin Pritchard's job could be on the line if the Pacers continue to have failures in the playoff, and I think, you know, like you said, you got to separate personal from business. So my last question for you, obviously, we we know that there's other teams that have openings at the head coaching position, Philadelphia, New Orleans, Brooklyn, Chicago, um, you know, it could be San Antonio, Houston possibly, well, more than likely. So Houston could have an open spot as well if, if Popovich does leave. So when you look at all those other organizations, all those other franchises, where do you rank Indiana on that totem pole?
1: In terms of, like, the most desirable place to coach? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, look, let me tell you, Brooklyn's going to be pretty high up, even though they got got head cases in Kyrie and KD. they got talent. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to probably put Brooklyn somewhere at the top of that list, despite those guys being a little bit cuckoo. Um, I I put the Pacers somewhere about eh, maybe about three or four. Mm -hmm. Uh, I put them ahead of New Orleans. Um, I put them definitely ahead of Philadelphia. Um, even though that's a great basketball market, too, I just I don't like I think the difference, say, for instance, between a Pacers and a bigger market like Philly is Philly's to me, Philly's front office and kind of uh, situation with ownership. I've been saying since no- November is an absolute disaster. And I don't think a coach really can do his job there the way it needs to be done. So I put the Pacers above them. Um, I mean, obviously, New Orleans is good because they have some good pieces there. I just don't think that's a great market. For basketball, so I would put uh, Indiana above that too. Uh, so I would say, other than maybe, I'd say other than maybe Brooklyn, um, yeah,
3: Chicago somewhere in the mix.
1: Yeah, you know
3: their roster though. Houston I, might be the one that's sneaky good. Yeah,
1: Houston. I would say You could say Houston and Chicago. You could say Houston and Brooklyn. And and I'm saying I'm kind of teetering on Houston. I'm not sure. I don't know what's going to happen with Daryl Morey and what they're going to do going forward. So I'm not quite positive about them. But Chicago, yeah, that roster is that roster is something else, <laughs> and, and we don't know what that front office. I think it's better. It looks like it's going to be better. I mean, let's face it, moving on from Gar, uh, that the Gar regime with Boylan is automatically going to make you better, addition by subtraction. But um, yeah, I can't. mess Chicago's a good market. I just don't know if that's a. You can be in a good market, but the job isn't necessarily a great job. And so yeah, I put Indy even over them too. So I'd say maybe about three. How about that?
3: That, that sounds good to me I like it. I, I like it it's a lot exactly. better because I mean when you look at the other teams I mean they have star players the Pacers don't have that alpha star so that's the only reason I kind of you know think maybe they wouldn't want to come to Indiana just because a little bit of a smaller market you know they don't have that Joel Embiid Ben Simmons combo that Zion Williamson obviously in New Orleans James Harden Houston <laughs> you already mentioned Durant Kyrian, and Kyrian in Brooklyn obviously they're ahead of them Chicago uh, I mean what do you got Zach Levine I mean I don't think that that's such a desirable place especially with how poor their organization has been run over the past you know decade really so you know Indiana I'm excited to see what they do what kind of moves they make I uh you know I've been on the fence on what they should do at the LaDipo but I feel you know I'm I'm fine if they trade him because who knows if he's ever going to get back to being that you know player we saw in 2017-2018 and at the end of the day this pacers team they have to make moves to continue to grow i'm not sure what those moves are but if they if they want to play faster they're going to have to make some significant changes and there's going to be some fan favorites that will probably be dealt and uh it's going to be hard for some of these fans to accept all of these uh, these changes because i think it's going to be a busier summer than people realize
1: yeah i know and it's going to have to take place in a small period of time this isn't the usual off season that we're going to have i mean yeah. You know, this is so. There's going to be, a, I think, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening in a real small window of time, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to keep up with it. <laughs>
3: well, if you need help, let me know, Jay. But yeah, always, uh, always great to have you on. This was great stuff. You know, uh, 45 minutes here worth of of great content. I was maybe thinking 20 minutes with you, but hey, this is this is just too much greatness to keep talking about so you guys can follow jay on twitter at this is jay michael and uh we thank you so much for coming on man looking forward to your article that's coming out is it tomorrow on uh, your conversation with mcmillan
1: um the first piece of it drops right now is i um, told i just got a text telling me it is posted now and there's some the, the other juicy some of the other juicier stuff i'm holding out for um for something else i can't give it all in one take so yeah,
3: yeah. no you gotta make you gotta stretch it out i completely understand that so <laughs> All right, all right, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. righty, everybody, that does it for another episode of Setting the Pace on IndieSportsLegends.com. If you haven't noticed, we have terminated PacersTalk.net, and, and we're going to merge that website basically with Indie Sports Legends run by Tyler Smith. So you'll be able to see all of our work that we did originally at PacersTalk.net over at IndieSportsLegends.com. And uh, we're looking forward to that move going forward. I have an article out talking about seven coaching candidates I could see the Pacers interviewing for their head coaching vacancy. I uh, want to thank Jay Michael once again for coming on. Fochi had to hop off before we were able to record this closing segment. So Fochi, uh, you can follow him on Twitter at underscore facci. I'm at Alex Golden NBA. You can follow us on Twitter at Setting the Pace Three. And until next time, we'll talk to y'all later. Peace out, Pacer Nation. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings,
1: a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on.